This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. The meaning of life is not about reaching some point or striving towards a final goal. It is about being engaged in activities that you can recognize and affirm as ends in themselves and affirm as intrinsically meaningful to sustain and cultivate, even though they can always fall apart and even though they can never be completed or achieved once and for all. Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Sean Ailing, Vox's interviews writer, filling in for Ezra Klein. This is a very unusual show, and I honestly don't even know where to begin. My guest is Martin Hagland, a philosopher at Yale and the author of an amazing new book called This Life. Hagland is a deep and ambitious thinker who has written what I consider one of the most important books of the last several years. I thought about how to summarize the book, and I'm just not sure there's any good way to do it, given its enormous scope. Instead, I'll offer a warning and an invitation of sorts. This is a really heavy and sprawling conversation that begins with questions about the meaning of life and ends with a discussion about socialism as the only justifiable political project in light of our actual condition as human beings. For Haglin, this life is all we have. There is no heaven, no afterlife, no eternal beyond. We live and we die. And that means that the most important question any of us can possibly ask is, what should we do with our time? Haglin's book isn't a celebration of death or even a critique of religion. It is rather an attempt to grapple with the implications of our fragile condition, a condition that we share with all living beings. In this conversation, Haglin and I talk about what it means to live a free and purposeful life without regret or illusion. And we talk about the limits of capitalism and why it doesn't really allow us to own our time in the way we ought to. I have to say, I really love this conversation and I admire Haglin's willingness to tackle the biggest questions any of us can ever ask. And I think by the end of it, you will too. As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Martin Haglin. Martin Haglin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. 
Well, let's dive right in. Uh, I, I want to start by just asking you why, how should we spend our time is the most important question human beings can ask. Why is how should we spend our time the most important question any human being can ask? It's a great question. And the answer is because that is actually the question that underlies and informs all the other questions we're asking. And that's one of the things I'm trying to show in the book, that like that's not a separate question. Like you have a bunch of other questions, and then it's also like, what should I do with my time? You know, the form of that question is rather the form of all other questions. Sometimes we ask that explicitly. Am I wasting my time? I'm having a great time. All of those things, then it's explicit. But even implicitly, just in terms of like, when we think about what you're committed to, it's inseparable from what you are ready and willing to devote your time to, what your priorities are. When you think about who someone is, it's like, what are the set of priorities that structure their lives? And even though those questions of priorities are not exhausted by quantitatively, of course, how you spend your time, they are ways in which you, you know, in practice, show your devotion to and your valuation of things by devoting your time to them. And I mean, just by virtue of doing something, you are committing yourself implicitly to claim that it's worth doing. And of course, it can turn out that by your own lights, you're wrong about that. You were like, actually, that was not worth doing. It was a waste of my time. But all of that just shows how like all of these other normative concerns we have about what's worthy of our commitments, what's worthy of our time, always, always goes back to that question. Time is important to you in this book because of the reality of death. Now, you know, most people, even most atheists, I assume, would probably say, Sure, it would be better if they didn't have to die. Sure, it would be grand and lovely if heaven actually existed. But death for you is quite literally a blessing. And, and, and the idea of heaven, on your view, actually undermines the, the meaning and the beauty and the significance of life. So why is that? Why are you so explicitly anti-heaven? Yes, uh Great question. Let's parse a couple of things here because it's very interesting how you laid it out. I don't think death is a blessing. I think life is a blessing. I don't want to die, but it's only by virtue of being mortal, of running the risk of death, that things can matter, that things can be at stake. So the reason I don't think heaven or eternity or nirvana is desirable is precisely because it would be the same thing as death. There would no longer be anything to do. You couldn't be anyone because built into a life that matters and, and anything that matters is that it is fragile, that it's something we have to sustain. And doesn't mean that like that's the only reason that things are valuable because that wouldn't make any sense, of course. It's just that whatever you value as an end in itself that you affirm as good and worthy of sustaining and devoting yourself to, including leading your own life, it's just built into that is the sense of its fragility because if it wasn't fragile, it wasn't something you had to sustain, it wouldn't require anything of you. And whatever happened, it would just be the same. So the idea is just that like the fragility of finitude and the risk of death is intrinsic to the sense of anything matter. That doesn't mean that like death itself is a blessing. I mean, but rather that the relation to death and the risk of death and the anxiety over the risk of death is intrinsic to caring about anything. I'm, I'm glad you went there. It's, it's an important point, right? Death as a blessing is probably putting it wrong, because I don't mean to imply that you're saying we ought to celebrate death, but you are saying that without the reality of death, life would be emptied of its meaning, or it would be impossible 
for life to have any real significance precisely because it would go on forever and therefore it would not be sort of sacred in any meaningful sense. Yes, the idea is that life wouldn't even be intelligible as life without the relation to death. That's the idea. And I ground that argument by starting from like, what's the most minimal form of all living beings? What makes something intelligible as a living being? Well, that's a unique form of self-maintenance. That is to say, like, a living being can't just exist in the way that a stone or a table exists. A living being always has to do something and be engaged in the activity of sustaining its life to be alive. And then I'm trying to show that, okay, for that activity to be intelligible and for literally your life to depend on that activity, death has to be possible at every moment. But that doesn't mean that like what you value is death or that like th that relation to death necessarily makes your life meaningful. It's just that like it's only in relation to that sort of risk that even the question of whether you're leading a meaningful life or a meaningless life can be at stake because it's only in that sort of relation that is even intelligible that you have a life that you can waste or cultivate, squander, lose, cherish. So it opens that whole space of meaning, but it's not itself something that on its own gives life meaning or gives you reason to live because it's not like you're living in order to die. It's just that like all the things that do give your life meaning and all the things you value, including your own life flourishing, bears within itself the risk of withering. Because if there wasn't a risk of withering, there would be nothing at stake in like flourishing. And without the risk of failure, there would be nothing at stake in succeeding and flourishing in what you're doing. Couldn't we maybe spin the argument the other way? So if, if death is final and everything amounts to dust on a long enough timeline, you know, why does any of it matter, right? I mean, I agree with you, to be clear, that, that death makes life all the more sacred. But I understand why someone might stare into that abyss and find it totally unbearable and therefore find the idea or belief in the idea of an afterlife existentially urgent. Absolutely. And I think it's very important for my approach to these issues that I, I'm not dismissing these sorts of dispositions or waving them away. I'm trying to inhabit them and give a different account or what is at stake in them. So let me try to uh, explain what I mean by that. So what you were just recounting was this very familiar existential trope of thinking that like, well, you know, when I contemplate that all of this is gonna get lost, you know, I fall into despair. But very interestingly, built in that, that there's already there, if you didn't actually believe in the meaningfulness of, and significance of that which was going to be lost, you know, the very despair at the prospect of it turning into dust wouldn't even be intelligible to you. So there is a sort of commitment to life and sustaining life there. And one thing I'm trying to, very important distinction I make in the book is that like that desire not to die, that desire and that commitment which makes the prospect of death seem a threat to meaning, that actually comes not from a desire for eternity, but from a desire for what I call living on. So a lot of the things that we classify as testifying to our desire for eternity or immortality are actually better understood as commitments to prolonging and, and sustaining life, you know, living not just longer, but living better, making life flourish. But that's not a desire to make life invulnerable or exempt from the risk of death. That's just a commitment to prolonging life and improving the quality of life. One thing I want to show is that we, we're already committed to that, and it's only in light of that that we can even, like, despair at the prospect of death. What does it mean to live a secular life in your perspective? Is it, is, does it mean precisely to always live in the light of this sort of inevitable truth that we will die and therefore every moment is precious, or does it mean something else? 
Well, so the first thing to say is that I define the secular in my sense in accordance with its etymological root, you know, so the Latin secularis, which means, you know, the historical, the temporal, the finite. All of these things are secular because they concern forms of life that don't exist by themselves or eternally, but like are, you know, are constituted by our historical and social practices. So that sounds like, you know, we are all living secular lives, whether we are religious or secular, because everything we are devoted to in our lives are projects that can fall apart and depend on our social relations and our historical projects and all of those things. But the crucial thing in the book has to do with countering the sense that such a life that is horizontal, devoted to persons, projects, communities that are fragile, finite, can fall apart, that that's somehow second best, that that's lacking something, and that the most desirable would be to ascend from those sorts of horizontal relations vertically or like be released, whether imminently or transcendently, into a state where you were released from all of those vulnerabilities and concerns that follow from leading a secular life. And that second idea is he has a common denominator for various religious ideals. And, and the idea is that even though we are all already living a secular life, both individually and collectively, we need to develop ways of being able to own and affirm and cultivate the way in which we are leading our secular life, that is to say our social and historical interdependent lives, such that we can do greater justice to treating one another as ends in ourselves. And that's what the book is trying to specify, what it would mean to like, not just implicitly, but explicitly devote ourselves to building a better life together. There's an interesting paradox here, right? So if you're right that death is what gives life its meaning and shape, and I think I think you are right, why is it that death is something almost everyone refuses to think about? I mean, I, most people live their lives as though they will go on forever which is to say we take it for granted. The things we waste our time on, the way we use our attention so thoughtlessly is absurd in light of the fact that the lights will go out at some point. How do you make sense of that? Yeah, great question. And <laughs> let me start off. And again, I don't want to be pedantic on this point, but I just want to like just really drill down on that. Like, It's not that death gives life meaning. It's just in light of death that we can even be gripped by the question of whether our lives are meaningful or meaningless. You know, So whenever we are in the grip of that question. And on some deep level, I take it that we're always in the grip of that question, you know, like, am I wasting my life or not? Like, you know, is the way I'm leading my life worthy of a good life or not? And the idea is just that, like, that normative question requires the relation to death, you know, that is to say that, like, it's only in light of that it can be too late. There can be a question of like what you ought to do sooner rather than later what is a waste of time what is a distraction and what is essential so it's like all of those distinctions only have a grip in the light of but that just means that the relation to death opens the possibility of life being meaningless or meaningful it's not that it automatically makes it meaningful but then your ver the very important question that you're raising is that it would seem on the explicit level that we fall away from and tend to forget this urgent question and that's true in one sense but Part of what I'm trying to show in the book is that on some deep level, that question of why I'm doing what I'm doing and if it's worth doing is at work on a very deep level. And then we tend to forget it, etc. But, but we also have the resources to recall it. And whenever we recall it, it's linked to this question about like, you know, like, 
And you can see this already in these popular things when people really ask themselves about what they should do. It's linked to this prospect that we can think about like, okay, so when I'm there on my deathbed, you know, what will I actually think about what I did today? You know, it, was it worth doing? And like, did I actually attend to the people that matter in my life? And did I do justice to my commitments? And that becomes especially clear in those explicit prospects of thinking about life from that standpoint of when it will almost be over. But implicitly, that's already there. And then I think to be, be able to own that and more, be more attentive to that, that's not something we can just achieve individually. It has to do with like structuring our lives in such a way that it's more conducive to be able to reckon with that question about like why we're doing what we're doing and how our lives are structured and how we can do justice to what we owe to one another and so on. So Nietzsche had this really wonderful riff about sandcastles in time. And, and I'm going to sort of state it here briefly for listeners in case they're not familiar with it. And I'm really curious how you think about it. So you know, he said, basically, you can measure someone's relationship to life and death by watching how they build a sandcastle, right? So, you know, one person hesitates to start building because, you know, she knows the waves will, will come and, and wash everything away. Yeah. Another person refuses to build it at all for the same reason. And then this third person just throws herself in, into it and builds the best fucking sandcastle anyone has ever seen, knowing full well that it will fall away with the next high tide. And, of course, Nietzsche thought that that third person was kind of like a model for how to live a finite life. I mean, is that vision, is that your vision as well? Or do you think we need to embrace death more than we defy it? No, I mean, as long as we uh, are wary of the Nietzsche's tendency towards excessive individualism on these questions, for reasons I'll explain, for, I think that's very helpful. Like in terms of the model, the short answer is that that's very resonant with things I'm arguing for in the book. One thing I want to bring out though, is that like, at the fullest height of leading your life the way, in, in your example, it ought to be lived. That's actually a very weird example of what I'm calling the double movement of secular faith that is built into any commitment, anything you care about. That is to say, like, you both commit to something, in this case, the sandcastle, as like something that has, that is an end in itself, that it's important to build and to sustain and that has value and meaning. You know, that's the first movement of secular faith. But the second movement is that you also run ahead into risk. Like, yeah, it can fall apart at any moment. It will be washed away. But far from that being a reason to withdraw, that's a reason to, like, devote yourself all the, with all the more care and passion to the project. And those two movements don't happen in sequence. They're built into caring about anything. But I would say that in a minimal sense, the person who doesn't build a castle or hesitates, they are also in the grip of that sort of care about finite life. It's just that, like, they're not able to own up to that in practice, you know, so it's a difference of degree how much we can actually own up to that care and passion and commitment in practice. And unlike what Nietzsche think, tended to think, I don't think that's just a matter of like individual strength. It really has to do with how we like are socially formed from the beginning and how we can build a society and a way of being together where like we can acknowledge our incredible fragility and interdependence, you know, but affirm that as a condition for building the things that matter and sustaining them. But to develop that sort of virtue and courage, we have to understand how the ability to do that is not reducible to individual products. It has to do with how we build our social and collective institutions from the ground up. What is the meaning of life is a kind of popular question. And, and, and the question itself implies that meaning is something that you discover ready-made ready in the world as opposed to 
making it yourself or constructing it yourself. And and part of what you say in the book is that part of what we do to find meaning is commit to, to projects and to people that we care about, projects that extend beyond ourselves. And maybe what I'm asking is, is that what you think the meaning of life is, to engage in meaningful projects, to identify with projects that you care about, and to work on them in solidarity with other fragile, finite human beings? Yes. Short answer, yes. But let me flesh that out in relation to the nuances of what you're saying, because I think it's very important. So a very important distinction in the book, and that I think is helpful that is often glossed over, is the distinction between a goal and a purpose. Because I think we often think about like the meaning of something in terms of a goal structure. And then it would mean that like, well, you know, the meaning is like that goal you're trying to arrive at. And when you arrive at, at that, then things are complete and done, you know? That's a goal, something you can arrive at. But a purpose is not something you can arrive at. It's not a point in the future, but it's what gives point to the future. So like, you know, it's the purpose of like, you know, me being a professor, for example, that's a purpose. It's not something I can complete once and for all. Being a professor gives meaning to my life, but not because it sets a goal that the meaning is exhausted by reaching that goal. And when I reach that goal, I'm complete as a professor. No, it's a purpose because... It gives me something for the sake of which I lead my life and something in light of which I can take myself to be doing well or doing poorly, flourishing or withering, all of these things. So the first thing to see is really that like the meaning of life is not about reaching some point or striving towards a final goal. It is about being engaged in activities that you can recognize and affirm as ends in themselves and firm as intrinsically meaningful to sustain and cultivate, even though they can always fall apart and even though they can never be completed or achieved once and for all. So that first thing, I think, just like reorients even what we're looking for. And that's very important to the notion of freedom in the book too, because I want to say that like freedom is not like freedom from constraints or freedom from responsibility, etc. Freedom is like besides being able to put yourself at stake in and take responsibility for and give reasons for what you're doing in a way that is sustainable. Because life, again, it's it's not a process that can be completely reach a goal. It's something that like we have to sustain and the matter and, and, and meaning is a matter of like those projects actually being worthy of being sustained. Do you think that the religious belief in eternity or the hereafter prevents people from doing what is necessary to improve this life right now? Yeah, so I want to be careful here, and I'm trying to be careful about this point in the book, because obviously people can derive a sense of meaning and purpose from their religious beliefs and uh, their religious commitments. But the important distinction is, for me, what is required to recognize our life together as the highest good, you know? And I think that there are, and I'm trying to show in the book, that there are resources in various religious traditions to implicitly acknowledge that actually what truly matters is how we treat one another in this life and that the highest good is the communities we build and the way we recognize and take care of one another. But the explicit structure of what I'm calling religious faith is to think in one way or another, that the highest good is not this fragile, social, finite, interdependent life, but a state of being that would transcend that. And that can be either in terms of like just an imminent contemplation of nature or 
transcendence in Christianity or Buddhism and Nirvana and so on. But all these ideas that like this life that we share and that we are responsible for and that we have to sustain is not the highest good. And that ultimately what we do here is a means to the end of salvation or liberation, as it is called in Buddhism. And I instead want to do this imminent critique of religion and showing that like, you know, the best of the insights and practices in these traditions can be better understood in secular terms. And if we develop that fully, we will develop the resources to recognize that the highest good, again, is this life that we share and that like we should think about meaning and commitment in horizontal terms. Where is the love? It's between us. Where is the responsibility? It's between us. It's not vertical, it's horizontal. And I really want to also show the resources for that within religious traditions, but to fully own up to that conception, that horizontal conception of meaning and matter and commitment is the secularization of those religious traditions. And I'm trying to show a way where we think about secularization, not as what we get when we take away religions and we stuck with some like disenchanted, meaningless world, but rather that like through secularization in my sense, we could fully come to avow our social freedom, our responsibility for one another, and fully recognize that as the highest good and not as the second best that we're stuck with because we are not eternal and vulnerable immaterial beings. I guess later in life I've come to appreciate maybe a little more the religious impulse, not for you know, eternity, but for transcendence, uh, this sort of this desire for, for something that kind of draws us out of our, ourselves, out of our own ego. And I know there are other ways of doing that, but religion is certainly one. But I, it seems like you're saying it's not worth the price, that religion, because it denies the fragility of life. Yeah, I'm really glad you put it that way because you bring out an intuition I think that a lot of people have and that I don't share, but I want to explain why. So like, it's very important to my own account that we need to be able to see ourselves as something, as part of something that is bigger than ourselves, you know, and we need to be committed to causes and projects that go beyond our self-interest as narrowly defined, you know. But I think it's a big mistake to think that the perennial model for us being able to identify with the social good or, you know, transcend various forms of narrow egoistic self-interest, that that requires religious belief or religious practices, you know? I think that certainly in various historical moments, those communal impulses and so on have been channeled through religious forms. But if your goal is to be ultimately be absolved from the demands of a finite social independent existence, then that's actually like a sort of negative conception of just being released from it all, rather than like what I'm advocating is that we can actually come to see ourselves in and identify with the institutions and practices and forms of life that we're building in this life. So we have to be careful about what we mean by transcendence here. I mean, like if it means like, you know, that you can hold yourself to ideals and projects that you can value and even sacrifice your life for. That's, I mean, I talk a lot about this in the book. That's perfectly intelligible in secular terms. That just requires that you're devoted to something that as an end in itself that goes beyond you. But I think that like the best forms that we could develop would be secular in my sense. You actually go further than most in the book in saying that moral responsibility would actually be impossible 
without a secular sense of freedom. I'd love for you to explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so this is very important that what I'm calling secular faith is something that is shared by everyone implicitly in practice, as I mentioned before. And even these fundamental notions of moral responsibility, like the golden rule, like, you know, treat others the way you would like to be treated yourself, those things, that those those are actually only intelligible in terms of what I'm calling secular faith, because it requires both that you believe in the intrinsic value of yourself and others as ends in themselves, so that like, you know, that they should be treated as ends in themselves. That's a condition for taking responsibility. But it also requires that you can, that you grasp that they are finite and fragile, because if they weren't, it wouldn't be of such deep and profound and irrevocable importance how we treat one another. So I think in our sense of responsibility, in our sense of care, there's already built in an understanding of ourselves and of others and of what we care about as fragile. And the philosophical and political task is to like make that explicit and gives us, give us more resources to fully take responsibility for and recognize that. I think it's worth pointing out that in your book, I, I, you take religion seriously in a way a lot of people don't, right? So it's your book is very clearly not a kind of new atheist sort of book, right? You're not interested in disproving God or putting on a cape for capital R reason. You're saying that lurking in every well-meaning religious believer is actually a secular humanist who doesn't yet recognize herself as such. I'm curious why you took that conciliatory approach. What do you want a, a religious person who comes to your book in good faith to take away from it? Great question. And let me try to—and I think it's such a good question. I think it requires perhaps more than one answer. So I'll give you my first answer first, and then we can take it from there. The first thing to say is that a helpful way of thinking about what I'm doing in the book is as a deepening of Marx's understanding of religion, because Marx, faced with the question of like, you know, why do we have these uh, various religious ideas of something beyond this life, a redemption that goes beyond the social existence that we lead? Marx's answer to that question was like, well, that's because our actual historical form of life is inherently unsatisfying and it's not what it ought to be but if we had a satisfying form of social life you know then those religious ideas of something beyond this fragile social historical life would wither away you know i mean i think that's right but marx doesn't explain and give an account of why that would be right because if what i'm calling the religious understanding is right then it's like no the reason we have these dreams of something beyond is because like it's just inherently unsatisfying to be a finite, fragile, vulnerable human being. So regardless of how emancipated and satisfying our social and shared life becomes, we're always going to have this longing for something beyond this, for eternal peace or eternal rest or like the stillness and emptiness of nirvana or the harmony of heaven. So one thing I'm trying to show is that those visions, religious visions on their own terms, couldn't actually fulfill what we desire and what we're committed to. And that, like, provides a grounding for Marx's claim that, like, if we transform our social conditions, we'll also be able to let go of these and we'll be able to recognize that this life together is our highest good. I know there are probably religious listeners who might be listening and who, who I think, instinctively object to, not that you're saying this right right now, but maybe gesturing towards it, object to this idea that, you know, they're only religious because of uh, you know, some promise of of 
reward or salvation. A, l- a lot of people think of their faith as a kind of moral anchor, some conception of the good that guides how they live in the here of now, like totally separate from any belief about whether or not, you know, the, the heaven is real. And, and I'm just curious, you know, how you respond to that. Great, great. Thank you. Because that allows me to tap into what I thought as the second strand of my answer, <laughs> which is not about Marx, but about Hegel, who's another important figure in the book and very important for the sorts of conception of religion that I develop in the book. Because Hegel's idea of religious practice was that the actual object of faith in religious practice is the community itself you build and the way you come together around important experiences of life and birth and death and you socially acknowledge what we owe to one another and the value of the community that we're building and sustaining and so on. That he thought was the, the, what, what religious practice is actually about, but he distinguished that from the explicit religious self-understanding where like those religious practices and the, the congregation, etc., is ultimately a means to the end of some higher purpose beyond our life together. And that can take the idea of like salvation or liberation beyond this life, but it can also take the form, and this is what you were mentioning now, to think that like how we understand the sort of like norms and moral laws to which we hold ourselves. Because you were absolutely right to point out that like a lot of people understandably think of the importance of their religious practice and their religious traditions as sort of vessels for moral insights and moral commitments and a sense of responsibility. But the crucial question for me concerns how we understand the authority of those norms and laws. You know, if we understand them as ultimately commanded by something supernatural or divine beyond us, then we conceive them in the last instance as sort of like these external laws to which we are subjected. But like the second recognition would be that like, yes, religious traditions have been vessels and reservoirs for more responsibility and and these senses. But we have to recognize that those norms and laws are ones we legislate to ourselves and we are answerable for them. And that's important also to fully take responsibility for them and, and, and also see like, you know, whether we should change those practices and change those moral conceptions. And we can only fully take responsibility for that if we recognize that like these moral laws to which we hold ourselves are not divinely ordained, but instituted and sustained by us. And we have to justify them. And we have to answer for their implications. And we have to be responsive to the ongoing process of whether they should be sustained or transformed, supplemented, all of that. So, And of course, that is already going on in practice, actually, in religious traditions, because people change their sense all the time. But within a religious framework, you can fully acknowledge that This is our responsibility. This is what we're doing. This is not coming from revelation. This is coming from the way in which we take responsibility for our life together. Well, can I ask you, I'll push you a little bit on that, right? Yes, please push me. I think the way you put it was um, that we're answerable to moral laws. So in what sense are we answerable if those moral laws aren't transcendent, if they don't come from on high? What's the injunction to do anything? What's the basis for solidarity or, or any more principle if it's not, I think, binding in some way that goes beyond the you know, mere affirmation of, of finite, fallible creatures? Yes, you're getting at a very important point here. So they're binding because you can recognize the reasons why we are holding ourselves to them and you can continually justify that. And that's the only way for it to actually be like, you know, one thing I say in the book is that to be free is to be like, 
bound to a law that you have legislated for yourself, not in the sense that you necessarily came up with it, but you can reaffirm it and recognize why it's valid. And if we instead think that like, oh, the reason I'm doing these things, the reason I'm like nice to Sean and the reason I care for all these people is because of some like divine external command that I'm not actually acting morally. I'm just being coerced, you know? I'm not freely endorsing the laws to which I subject myself. I just like, oh, this is what I have to do because tradition or God prescribes it, you know? But a free relation to that doesn't mean like, oh, you can do anything, a free for all. A free relation for it means that you can affirm the, the, the constraint of that law is a constraint you're imposing on yourself. Just as like, you know, when I'm uh, uh, taking up my teaching and doing philosophy, etc., I can't do whatever I want. But to do whatever I want wouldn't be to be freedom. I'm free in the sense that I actually take on the burdens and constraints of the practice that I want to sustain. And I say like, well, and the, and the demands that places on me are demands that I can recognize as me placing on myself. And I am trying to live up to them and I count it as a failure if I betray them, not because I'm being judged by some supernatural creature, but because I'm failing to live up to yeah, the commitments to which I subscribe. But I'm happy to keep pushing for you to keep pushing me. This is a very important point. No, I just wanted to give you a chance to to, to respond to that because just to be clear, I, I mean, I am in your camp on this. I, I think the only possible basis for an ethics is an awareness of our our shared susceptibility to to suffering and to death, and the fact that we're all vulnerable and we're all contingent creatures and we're all going to die, and that we choose to live in spite of all that is itself an affirmation of life and the only real justification we need for for human solidarity. Great. So can I just add one more thing to that that is important to the book? Sure. Uh, and so, so that listeners can have the full sense of the full picture too. That Because what you, what you said now, which I agree with, that's, that's a very general statement. But what's also important to the book is the unique historical achievement of the modern idea of freedom and the idea that like each one is an end in him or herself. You know, that's a very unique historical achievement that is very fragile and could go away and that we're failing to live up to all the time. But that's my starting point, that we come to recognize with the modern idea of freedom and equality that in principle, each one is inherently valuable and worthy of respect and an end in herself, not dependent on any beliefs in that they have immortal souls or are created by a god or anything like that. In a way, what I'm doing in the second half of the book is to say like, okay, given that we've achieved that formally, that commitment to freedom and equality, what would it mean to in practice, do justice and treat one another as ends in ourselves. And that would be the fulfillment of a secular ethics and politics. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It'll probably surprise a lot of people who aren't familiar with with Marx or only know a cartoonish version of Marx that that you actually consider him one of the most spiritually minded secular thinkers of the, the modern world. I mean, what is it about Marx's concerns that makes him such a serious spiritual thinker? Yes, great. I'm glad you bring this up. So let's first be very clear on what I mean by by spiritual, which, you know, I think a lot of people hear that word and they think about something supernatural, immaterial, or some sort of contemplative peace. So that like the highest form of spiritual life would be when you're like blissing out in contemplative harmony or something like that. And that's not at all what I mean. Spiritual questions concerns questions of what we value, what is worth doing, all of these normative questions about value are spiritual questions, but they're questions about who we should be and what we should do. And even though we are through and through animals, we are unique kind of animals because we are animals who don't just in practice treat our life as valuable because we maintain it, but we can also ask ourselves what is valuable and what's worth doing. And Marx is a profound thinker of the conditions of such a spiritual life because Marx allows us to think on the deepest level why such spiritual questions can't be separated from material questions and why existential questions can't be separated from economical questions. So via Marx, I have a way of thinking about questions of economy and material conditions, not as limited to some one sphere of life as we tend to think about it, but as that like in the deepest sense, all questions about what is worth doing, how we should spend our time, what is worth doing, not worth doing, etc. Those are economical questions in the general sense that they are questions about what is worth prioritizing and how we should organize our time. So all the questions of our spiritual and existential lives, you know, can't be separated from how we are materially reproducing our lives and how, how we're organizing our economy. And that's really like Marx provides a way into that for me on the deepest level. What is Marx's answer to the question of, of what should we do with our time? And, and I guess relatedly, what is your answer to the question of what should we do with our time? Yeah. So very importantly, I say in the book that like political progress for Marx is a matter of the degree to which we can precisely own that question and take responsibility for that question, both individually and collectively, you know? So like the answer to that question is not dictated to us either by just like, oh, I have to do this or I have to take this job because otherwise I'm going to die, I'm not going to survive, or like otherwise I'm not going to get any profit. So that's like, you know, fulfilling our commitment to like a democratic form of life where we are actually answerable to one another for what we do and for how we sustain our lives. That's the sort of motivation for Marx's critique capitalism, that it doesn't allow us to, like, own up to that question. So, so it's less of a blueprint for, like, oh, this is how we need to lead our lives, rather than, like, we need to be organized in such a way that the answer to that question is actually something that we continually can debate democratically and engage in and always have to justify rather than it being dictated to us either by material necessity or by supposedly you know, religiously instituted laws and so on. One of the things about 
the capitalist world, and, and you, you write about this in the book, is that it doesn't really even account for time as a relevant metric. I mean, everything is valued in terms of wealth and profit and property. You're defined by what you own, by what you possess. It's the most spiritually impoverished way, in the way you're using the word, uh, that I can possibly imagine. And this was sort of Marx's point of departure as well, right? Yes, let's be careful here, though. I mean, I appreciate you bringing those points up, but it's also very important to be careful about the fact that, like, even though Marx is very critical of capitalism and specify whether it has to be overcome, he's also thinks that, relatively speaking, capitalism is a form of progress compared to previous forms of life. And that question of time is at the heart of that. So there's a contradiction here, because on the one hand, Capitalism, especially wage labor under capitalism, is the first social form which in principle recognizes that everyone's time is valuable in the sense that, like, you know, you have to pay someone to do something rather than just enslave them, you know. What you're saying to a slave is that you don't own your time at all. I own you. I own your life and I own your time. Whereas, like, formally with something like wage labor, there's a form of recognition that, like, what each one of us owns most minimally is the time of our lives, you know. Maybe I don't have any property, Etc. But what I do have is the time of my life, and I own it in the sense that like no one can buy my life, but I can sell parts of my time. So there's a negative recognition that my time is valuable because it costs something to buy it. And that's a qualitative shift that happens with capitalism. Of course, that doesn't mean that like slavery and so on hasn't persisted on capitalism, but at least we can recognize it as a contradiction of our commitment to treating everyone as like having ownership of their life. So as you were saying, Marx was a critic of capitalism, but he thought capitalism was a necessary step in this sort of march towards progress. But capitalism, by virtue of its structure and the values that undergird it, was incapable of actually freeing us in the end from a kind of bondage. What was that bondage and why, why was capitalism necessary and why did it have to be discarded in order for us to own our time, own our freedom in the way you say we should and need to do. Well, if we first take the, say a little bit more about the progress part and then why that progress is contradicted and can't be fulfilled under capitalism. So the, so the progress part that Marx specifies is that like, when we think about like, how come we have come to embrace this idea, formally speaking, of everyone's freedom and equality? And Marx said like, well, that actually required the material mode of production under capitalism. Why? Because like, if you're buying and selling on a market, you know, each buyer and seller is formally equal in the sense that, like, you know, it doesn't matter, like, if I'm a king or a peasant, etc., because, like, you know, my money is worth as much in principle. So, like, you know, power relations now in principle can't be justified by caste or race or blood, all of these things, you know. Instead, we are formally equal, but then we're still unequal because we have different amounts of capital, but the sort of economics roots of domination are explicitly recognized. And then we're also like minimally formally free in the sense that like no one can just enslave us or force us to do something, but like we are quote unquote free to sell our labor. So that's the progress part in the sense that like it, it establishes certain ideas of freedom and equality. But then the point is that like capitalism can't actually make good on those promises of freedom and equality because, you know, we're still structurally unequal because even though I might not now be nominated because I don't have aristocratic blood, but if I don't have any capital money, like if I'm going to live, I have to sell my time to a capitalist who employs me and who decides the purposes of 
production and so on beyond me. But also that like, if I'm a capitalist producer, I'm not free to ask like, you know, what would be the best thing for me to produce given the actual commitments and values I have and what would be good for our society. No, I have to create something that is profitable because if I don't, if I don't make a profit, you know, I lose my business and now I'm a wage laborer and someone else takes over the market, you know? So all of these questions about like what is valuable, what is meaningful to do either with our time when we're working or when we are producing products, you know, all of those questions become subordinated to the question of what is profitable and all wealth is generated through such profits because like under capitalism, there are only three ways of surviving. Either you have capital that is based on profit or you get a wage so you can buy something to eat and don't die or you get welfare from the state. But that welfare is also just distributional wealth that is generated by taxing the profits and capital of private corporations. So like that fundamental economical question of like what is worth doing, what we should produce, what we should work with, what we should devote our lives to, that question is subordinated to the question of what can turn a profit, what will someone, you know, buy me for on the market rather than like what is actually needed for our life together. Let me let me throw this something at you, right? So human beings are distinct in that we're the only being for whom our own being is a question, right? And so part of what you're saying is that capitalism prevents us from owning our freedom, really owning our freedom and really owning our time. There is... There is a kind of pessimistic view of human nature that says human beings, when it comes down to it, don't really want to own, or many, don't really want to own their time in that way, don't really want to face up to their freedom in that way, that they prefer the diversion of a kind of consumerist capitalist world, that they prefer to flee these sorts of questions and and live without having to uh, experience the anxiety of, of actually staring at these sorts of, of, of existential questions in the face. That is not my view, but it is a view. And, and I'm curious if that gives you pause at all, or if you think it's just bullshit. <laughs> no, I'm really glad you brought it up because I think it's, an, it's, it's a claim, because this is a widely shared intuition, it's important to take time with it. And I disagree with it, but I don't want to just say it's bullshit. I want to like carefully try to explain what I think is going wrong in that kind of reasoning. So let me try to be careful. That appeal to human nature is an appeal to human nature that is reified in the sense that it's it's just asserts that like independently of how we are social and historically organized, this is just how human beings are, whether you say that they're egoistic or can't own their freedom or can't really take responsibility, they need to be commanded or coerced, all of those things. I think that that sort of appeal to human nature is very misguided. Because what's unique about our nature is that it is in our nature to be socially formed. That's very different than other animals that we know of. So on my notion of spiritual freedom, I make this distinction in the book between natural freedom and spiritual freedom. And natural freedom is the kind of freedom we see in other animals. We are also animals, and uh, you know, spiritual freedom is not something supernatural. It's 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 a way of being an animal. But the distinction here is that at least other animals, insofar as we know of them, they have the freedom to move around. You know, if I'm a lion, uh, I can roam around on the savanna. I can chase down, you know, an antelope. All these things. So I have that freedom of self movement and some sort of self determination. But what I can't do as a lion is that I can't ask myself, 
whether I ought to act this way as a lion. You know, should I really, you know, spend my time hanging out on the savanna and chasing down antelopes? Is this really the best way of being a lion? You know, the standards, what it means to be a lion is given for me. Whereas what's unique about us and what makes our form of freedom like a spiritual form of freedom is that, you know, for us, there's not just a question as there is for the lion of like whether I would succeed or fail at doing something that I'm doing. It's also a question of whether the very norms and standards in light of which we lead our lives are valid and adequate and justified. We can call that into question. We actually have to change the very principles in light of which we lead our lives. Those principles continue at issue. And that's why we have a history. That's why we like the very idea of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a man or a woman. All of these things can change for us. We can transform them. And we can do that because implicitly, that's always a question for us. You know, the question for us is not just what ought I to do, but also like, ought I to do what I supposedly ought to do? Are these the right principles in light of which we lead our lives? So we have the freedom to change the very criteria of our life. That doesn't mean that we can like invent them from scratch or that there are no constraints. That's not what it means, but it just means that like for us, who we are, what it means to be us, it's always that question. For, for other species, for lions, you know, whether as an individual lion or as a species, it's a question of whether I'm like hungry or not, or whether I'm like managing to survive. But there's not the question of like, what does it mean to be a lion? Is this how we should understand ourselves as a lion species? But for us, there's always a question of like, who the hell are we? Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Why are you a democratic socialist and not a social democrat? That's a distinction that, that matters for you. I'd love for you to kind of tease that out. Yeah. So, so like the way I defined social democracy, that's how a lot of people think about democratic socialism when they use the term differently. Then it has to do with like your critique of capitalism is limited to how wealth is distributed and the various reforms you propose have to do with redistributing wealth. And it's not like I'm against that. But if you see that as the final end point, you can't take on the more fundamental question, how is wealth even produced under capitalism? How is value even generated? For what purpose are we building our technology and our means of production? Those things would rather require that like a transformation of the very measure of value in our society, such that like we would actually produce and work, not for the sake of profit, but for the sake of what we can recognize and affirm as the common good. And as long as you're just talking about redistribution of wealth, then like you will always be beholden to, you have to like make sure that all of these capitalists can make profits and you have to prioritize their interests in various ways because they are the only people who can generate the wealth that you can then tax and redistribute. And again, within our current form of life, those sorts of reforms can make important differences, but they can't solve the fundamental problems of capitalism that I identify in the book, that would require a transformation of like how we even produce and measure value in the first place. Part of what you're arguing, right, is that capitalism could never actually provide the sort of freedom we want because it doesn't value time in the way you describe it because it relies on the 
exploitation of human labor. But is it at least possible that capitalism could produce a, enough wealth or enough technological innovation to undercut the need for labor? Is it possible that machines could one day perform nearly all or most of the, the labor and that we, we, could, we could have enough time to do whatever we want and we could, we could own these, these questions in the way you think we should? Yeah, good question. I mean, certainly lots of people have thought that, and I try to show systematically in the book why that's mistaken. And it's a very simple reason for that, that like under capitalism, we don't develop technology and machines. The purpose of that is not to free up people's time so that they can devote that to intrinsically meaningful and, and socially important activities. The reason we develop technologies is to make uh, greater forms of profit through wage labor and people's work. But if there's no one working for, for a wage, there's also no way to make a profit, you know, and, and then there's no longer any capital wealth. So, 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 you know, an example I give is that, like, in an existential sense, if we develop, say we live in a village and it takes a lot of time for us to, like, get water, we all need to drink water to survive, and then we, like, invent a great well such that, like, we have running water in our village, that well is very valuable for us in an existential and social sense because it frees up time, not just quantitatively to sit around, but it just like makes it possible for us to individually and collectively really own the question of what, what we should be doing with our time and how we should develop our society. But under capitalism, that reduction of labor time doesn't generate any value for, by itself. It only generates value by increasing the profits of private corporations who own the water and sell it as a commodity. And, and for that whole process to work, there has to be people who are working for a wage and producing commodities that and can be bought to generate profits. And if you eliminate that, then there is no production of value, you know, and nothing actually gets done under capitalist conditions because, like, the only way that work is being done and that we're generating profits and value is through the buying and selling of commodities. But that requires that, like, there are people who work for a wage that they then can use to buy those commodities. So it's not a goal in capitalist production to actually, like, free people from meaningless forms of labor. It's just finding ways of, like, making labor profitable for capitalists. Yeah, I suppose where I landed at the end of your book, reading the end of your book, you diagnose these problems and they all seem true to me. All we have is this life, this time, and so much of it is wasted on a lot of ultimately pointless drudgery, which means in a very real way that our lives are being sort of stolen from us. And yet this, this is the world we have, even if it's not the world we ought to want. But I don't know how to get from this world to the world you imagine, and I'm not sure you do either. I mean, the best you can kind of muster in the book is to say that we'll have to negotiate this transition through an ongoing democratic conversation. But it's not clear to me what that means, and, 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 and I'm curious how you think or if you think we can ever get from the world we have to the world we want. Yeah, so two things about this. The first thing to say is that it's very important that like, the relation between the world we have and the world we want is not a complete separation in the sense that like the world we want would be just a complete negation of the world we have. That wouldn't be like an imminent critique of the world we have. What Marx is showing is that there is a contradiction in our form of life and that the dynamic of the world we inhabit, actually, we can understand why its own promise can only be fulfilled by being overcome. So that's one thing. And that's what I explained in the book. But you're right that then, like, how that sort of transformation is going to happen, I, I don't pretend to answer that question in the book. But I take it that, like, the work I do is 
groundwork for approaching that question in a new and better way. Because if we don't have a rigorous account of what capitalism is and how it works and why it is inimical to our freedom, and if we have no account of like why we would even desire a revolution of our lives and what the point of achieving an emancipated form of life would be and what its principles would be, then we have no chance of affecting that sort of transformation. So like I'm providing those resources and the and then like a further step to that is really thinking about how that sort of transformation would happen. And that's something that I am further engaged in thinking through now, but like neither in the book or at this point that I won't say something premature about, I really want to just like, because there's a lot of what's interesting about a historical moment is that for the first time in a long time, these fundamental questions about how we should organize our economy, how we should live and work together, those questions are really reopened in a profound way. And there's a lot of, there's a vague sense that there's something called capitalism, there's something wrong with, and there's something called socialism that we need, but there's very little clarity about what we mean by capitalism and what its contradictions are and what we mean by socialism and why it would be a better form of life. And those are the two questions I'm trying to provide profound answers to in the book. And in light of that, then, I hope we can take on the conversation about how the transformation could be possible. So we Typically in this show, by asking the guests to recommend three books to the audience, what would your three books be? So I'll choose one contemporary and one ancient and one in between. So uh, the contemporary book that I strongly recommend is by the philosopher Christine Korsgaard. She has a new book out called Fellow Creatures, Our Obligations to the Other Animals. And it's a fantastic example of what profound philosophical thinking can have to teach us about thinking both about fundamental questions about like what's the difference between us and other animals, how to think about animal ethics, all in light of also thinking through very profound philosophical issues concerning the conception of life and death, what a living organism is, what pain is, what pleasure is. So it's a fabulous book that people should read. So that's the contemporary recommendation. The Ancient one is Aristotle's treatise on the soul, the anima, which I'm teaching this semester at Yale. In my course on the mortality of the soul, I'm trying to show that the soul has to be mortal to, to be a soul. And uh, I'm going back to Aristotle to think that far. And in between, I recommend the very difficult but indispensable Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, which I, I try to explain in the book, This Life, why it's an indispensable book for understanding ourselves. So hopefully in the light of my book, it will also be easier to read Hegel's Phenomenology, uh, which is one of the greatest works of philosophy ever written. Martin Hagelin, thanks for much for being on the show. Thank you. That's the show. Thank you to Martin Hagelin. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you to Roger Karma, our researcher, Jeff Geld, our producer and editor. The Ezra Klein Show is a production of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>